and welcome to The Emigre, our second podcast here in season one, live from Charlottesville, where we're joined by Dominic Hilton in Buenos Aires and David Sachs in Barcelona, Spain. So Dominic, thank you uh, for joining us. Here in the December issue of The Emigre, you've written about Diego Maradona. What's that about? And who is he? Well, that, yes. I mean, even hearing that question when you live in a country like this one is, is sort of astonishing. I, I, it's hard to imagine who the equivalent is to El Diego in, uh, in other countries. But he really is deified here. And it was one year ago since his death. Um, and for those who don't know, he was the greatest footballer of all time. Uh, that's not only my opinion. That's I think that's that's not very controversial. Um, and uh, yeah, I wrote about what it was like to be here on the first anniversary of his death um, after having re- reported from here a year ago. It's sort of chaotic, riotous scenes that surrounded his death and funeral, um, which really were mind-blowing and I suppose one of the reasons I live here. Yeah, so what were some of the scenes that you saw a year ago that were particularly mind-blowing? Well, I mean, it was the passion. It was the fact that the funeral actually turned to riots. The presidential palace basically got invaded. Um, There was a threat that his body was going to get stolen. A story only broke the other week here that he was buried without his heart because they were pretty sure that his heart was going to get stolen. It was going to be a grave robbing. Um, his heart was going to get taken by the loyal fans of his. So it was all the kind of stuff that you'd sort of expect. Um, but it was, uh, it's very real. Um, somebody asked me a question the other day about whether people feel like they actually need to just go along with it or if the passion is, uh, is heartfelt. And it really is. Um, I, I see it everywhere, everyone I talk to. And on the anniversary of his death, I turned on the television and it was nothing but sort of bizarre content about him, uh, sort of ranging from documentaries about tattoos of him to a talk show, a rerun of a talk show in which naked women uh, paraded around the studio and he signed various parts of their body with a big, thick, black marker pen. And in the piece that you've written for The Emigre, you've written um, a little bit about some of the frustration you've had. How's it been trying to write about him? Yeah, it's a bit like being an evangelist, really. I mean, the guy is known here as Dios, which means God in Spanish, for those who don't know. And it's spelled D-1-0-S, and number 10 is well, not only his number as a footballer, but also he is known as the 10 uh, amongst his many sort of nicknames. So really it makes you feel like you're sort of writing the fifth gospel, you know, and it actually is quite nerve wracking because I don't want to say anything uh, that could upset anybody, but you're bound to because all sorts of news is breaking constantly here. Now, perhaps even more than ever, a year on from his death. And let's just say that not all of it is favorable Meanwhile, though, not a single day goes by in which they're into a new mural that sort of, sort of pops up out of nowhere. Uh, you know, something, uh, his, his image 
is absolutely everywhere. It's, uh, it's really something to behold. Chris, you've written from Charlottesville uh, in this month's edition of The Emigre, an article called An America Fading from View, Boomer to Bust, in which you write about getting vaccinated there and your experiences of a couple of eating eating establishments, should we say, and the differences between them. Do you want to talk us through this? Because it seems to be like you took the temperature of, of the United States a little. Yeah, well, I mean, Charlottesville is an interesting place because it featured in a couple of the presidential debates um, uh, recently. And uh, so in that sense, it is a bit of a temperature check on the country. Um, I mean, lo love being here and love living here. And um, yeah, we went up to, uh, I went up to get my vaccine uh, earlier this year. And... Um, yeah, the J.C. Penney Mall is completely derelict, and this is like slightly strange because the mall experience is America. It's the America I grew up with of the '80s and the '90s, even the noughties. Um, you think of Back to the Future and that scene where Marty McFly's got the bazooka, or the Libyans do, and he says the Libyans are coming, and that's like set uh, probably with a J.C. Penney in the background. I can't remember. I like remember going to um, malls in. Um, uh, you know, constantly over the last uh, two decades. So to see one completely empty and then filled with the National Guard and then a whole troop of 60-year-old um, nurses with needles was a little dystopian um, in and of itself. So I think, yeah, I just write a little bit about that. But at the same time, the energy in the room was so American and so optimistic, can-do, and really inspiring. I was even just chatting to someone at work uh, the other day he said oh yeah I remember that it was so cool going up there really sort of like pumped up um so yeah this was, was an incredible experience but I did find it a bit jarring because I, I just noticed how actually everyone in that room apart from the National Guard were were kind of older like sort of a boomer age um nudging toward retirement and it just it was a stark juxtaposition with some of the experience um, in the local coffee shops here, where people seem to be a bit more fused with their activism and their um, selling of coffee. But I, I don't know, it's just casual observation. I don't want to make any really didactic, you know, polarized observations. But I, it felt being in the um, decaying corpse of the American mall. Um, in the mall. In mm -hmm. the mall. Um, but you you contrasted one of the things you did was to contrast the mall experience and the coffee shop experience also with your experiences in sort of chain establishments like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. And you you suggested that in both the mall and the chain restaurants, there was a real sense of the diversity of America. Uh, whereas in the coffee shop, there was a sort of a uniformity, homogeneity. Do you want to sort of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. I think, I mean, Charlottesville, a university city, um, relatively small population with sort of historic um, uh, injustices that do need to be looked at and addressed. So, you know, it's great that we're having these conversations um, and able to address uh, historic wrongs. Uh, but 
yeah, it is a little bit strange that there's a a group of people here. Um, I think only seventeen percent vote Republican in in Charlottesville, so the rest is a uh, Democrat voting. Um, and I that that flavor seems to affect some of what you see here, where the independent uh, independent chain uh, independent stores, as opposed to the chains, have a um, a, a greater sense of uh, political activism, whereas the other stuff, the chain stores, aren't so bothered about their posturing. They're just um, serving you food and doing it in that American way that's just sort of cheap, cheerful, done really well. You mentioned as well that a lot of private homes. Private homes are the same. You, know, you mentioned in the article a lot of mansions with yard signs. Yeah, there's this like, strange phenomenon here where... Um, this is a conversation going on about affordable housing and making sure that you know Charlottesville is a welcoming place to refugees, asylum seekers, and people from different religions and backgrounds. So it's fantastic, really, to be applauded. Yet there seems to be a slight disconnect between these multi-million-dollar historic mansions and some of the best streets in the city that talk about housing injustice is racial uh, justice issue or injustice anywhere is just a threat to justice everywhere and these houses are massive and you have to right. be completely loaded to have them and i don't see them necessarily sort of turning them into sort of like housing for multiple uh, occupancy so it's just slightly jarring slightly weird but i guess any hypocrisy is and we're all um, we all have the capacity and potential for that so anyway thank you for asking about the piece appreciate it What else is happening in Buenos Aires there, Dominic? Uh, right now, there's a fire going on, uh, I can see from my window. Um, the other day, the, there's an obelisk here on the uh, Avenida de Nueva de Julio, which is uh, supposedly the widest boulevard in the world, although they say that about all sorts of things here. I don't know if they're fact-check true. Um, but anyway, it's very nice. But there's an obelisk here, which isn't quite the Washington Monument. But the other day, they covered it in a condom. Um, and uh, I, I, I didn't endeavor to find out why, because I just thought it was sort of more fun to just not know and to just see this massive phallic symbol in the middle of my city um, covered up for safe sex. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know what that was about. There's a, The Economist did something this week saying that Buenos Aires is the ninth cheapest city in the world in which to live. And you can imagine what the other cities were. The other cities were, I think the top one was Kabul, and then there was Damascus and all these sorts of places. Um, and people weren't ex exceptionally proud of that one. Um, uh, it was kind of pretty much <laughs> described as a hellhole. And, and yet here we are in this beautiful city. Um, uh, and, and this is cheap as a war zone to live in. This is the idea. I mean, I, I can't say it's quite like that uh, in my experience. But yes, it is. It is. I mean, compared, I'm sure, to Charlottesville, it's almost like a joke. Um, but I, I, I would hesitate to compare this place to Kabul. I must admit, I, I rather enjoy living here. Um, I'm not sure I'd feel quite the same affection towards Kabul. Uh, nothing against the people of Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, I like the roof above my head to be relatively secure. There have been elections recently, is that right? 
we had elections recently, which um, which was all very exciting, uh, and more so if if this is not your native country, because it's just fun to watch other people get worked up. Um, and this was no exception, but there was a, actually a genuinely sort of mm, platonic shift, maybe. But for the first time since 1983 in this country, the Peronists lost control of Congress, which I don't know. I, I don't know enough or really understand the political situation here as much as anybody can when they're not born here. But I do think that that signals something quite big and it, I mean, while it would take a heck of a long time to turn things around in this country, that's a huge sort of blow for what is essentially the political establishment in this country. And then has an alternative emerged? Yeah, I mean, everything works here by coalition, right? So you've got, that. I mean, there are thousands of political parties, and I don't understand what any of them, how they distinguish each other from each other. It's usually just sort of personal battles and that sort of thing. And there are sort of, you know, branches of every single movement. But there seems to, I mean, I saw something very strange like a few weeks ago, something I'd never seen before in my life, which was a bunch of young people, you know, students, rebel, radical students. And they were hold, hosting a rally. And the rally was for free markets and small government. Uh, and there were all these young people passionately screaming in favor of free markets. And I thought how odd that was. I'd never seen that before. At the same time, I, only last week, I ran straight into the monthly communist march that comes through my neighborhood. Um, so, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a funny place. It's a funny place, but there's a possibility that, that you know, something is beginning to crumble. Um, and I don't just mean the economy, which is truly crumbling. So the government here, because there's a, an almost total lack of immigration to this country, and because of the pandemic, obviously, the lack of tourism, the government here have launched a scheme or are launching a scheme, everything here takes a long time, to really encourage digital nomads to move to Argentina, um, uh, especially to Buenos Aires. And if you couple that along with the, the sort of this economist ranking of it being the ninth cheapest place to live in the world, they're obviously playing that up as a huge attraction to people who earn foreign money, um, have a foreign income, really, I should say. Um, but it worries me. I mean, as a, as a chap here um, who really doesn't want this place to be, you know, sort of bombarded with some sort of influx of foreign assholes like myself, um, I, I worry. I mean, you know, I don't want this place to get overrun by obnoxious expats. Um, and so I have a sort of a selfish interest in the idea of this place staying isolated um, with just me as the, uh, you know, the sort of exotic exception that proves the rule. Earlier today, I was able to chat to David Sachs in Barcelona, Spain. David's a journalist um, who worked in the Alexandria Times um, and then Street Blogs Denver. Um, and he's a radio uh, journalist too.
So, David, thank you for joining us from Barcelona in Spain, uh, where I understand that you are roaming the streets um, interested in public spaces there. Yeah, I mean, those are two separate things. I guess I just happen to be roaming the streets because uh, my old friend asked me to do a podcast interview. <laughs> but yeah, I am also interested in public spaces. Well, that's great. So I think I got to know you when you were a journalist um, in Alexandria, just outside of D.C., um, but you've been covering the local news for a while now. Where is it, where is it you have been doing that? Uh, Denver, Colorado, um, until I moved here in, uh, in mid-October. Um, in Denver, I was, well, I, I was hired to found a, a website called Streets Blog Denver. It's part of a national network that focuses on sustainable uh, transportation issues. So walking, biking, and transit and um, public spaces is, you know, not so tangentially related to that. It's pretty much pretty much one of the same. Um, and uh, after that, I left to sort of go towards more straight edge journalism at Denverite and Colorado Public Radio. And I covered city politics, transportation, public space, and uh, most recently, police reform. Yeah, there's lots of stuff there. Hopefully, we can bring you back to talk about some of those other issues. So certainly, when I knew you, you weren't as interested in, in public space. Um, uh, but what is it that sort of interesting to you about public space um, well i mean I, I would say that i was interested in it but i didn't necessarily know it yet because i was really interested in cities and um i was living in washington dc where we met and um you know i think it's a pretty good city as far as public space uh, goes and uh, i didn't know it at the time but i really loved the feel of the city and it turns out the feel of the city is just so related uh to how that city is planned and it's something i had thought about when i was younger and oh you know this place exists this way because someone planned it or, or many people planned it this way and, and it sort of dawned on me that i you know, i loved biking around dc to get around and taking public transportation to get around but i sort of took it i sort of took it for granted i sort of took it for granted so um once i realized that you know these are these spaces are a result of political choices or maybe not always political but probably for the most part choices people make um you know then it became sort of a policy issue um that i could really latch on to and then what was your observations then about denver say, in comparison to washington dc Which, well i mean <laughs> go ahead well and because i think what struck me about washington when i lived there was how neighborly and neighborhoody it was everything was within walking distance within your neighborhood um and so that it was very easy to get to know people um to be able to i mean i think i moved there, i didn't know anyone and w within weeks i was like bumping into people that i that i knew um mm -hmm. which i think is a lot harder to do in some of these larger american cities that are sort of built for the car yeah i mean Yes and no. I, I, with that specific question, Denver was sort of easy because um, while it's a very big city um, geographically, the neighborhoods, you know, that we sort of frequented were the same neighborhoods as our friends frequented, which I guess happens, you know, depending on things like um, what you like to do, class, socioeconomic things, you know, uh, sort of where you're at with that sort of thing. Um, back to public transportation, though, like, Washington was, you know, very good. But again, it's something I didn't realize until I moved to Denver. Um, uh, because Denver, you know, you need a car to get around. Um, 
partly because they haven't invested in the transit system, um, like, you know, the bus network, um, especially as much as other cities, but also because of the land use. I mean, it's just so residential. So sorry, I'm out of breath because I'm walking up a hill or I was. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, it was difficult to get around without a car. And so you experience your city differently when you're sort of in this protective box um, without the sort of in-your-face sights and sounds of, of the city. So while it was neighborhoody, um, you know, you sort of needed a car for the most part to get from neighborhood to neighborhood. That's not true. Sorry. I biked everywhere there, but it wasn't easy. I'm very comfortable on a bike. And if you're not, you're not going to do that. So now you've moved to Barcelona and you've been there for a couple of months. What are the first things then that strike you about this public transport and getting around and the design of neighborhoods? I mean, we moved here for a lot of reasons. Um, and one, you know, I mean, the main one is because my wife got a job here, right? But um, we wanted to come here for a lot of reasons. And one is because it'd be car free. So uh, the first thing that struck me was um, that it's true. You don't need a car here, which I knew going into it. But um, how, I guess, how human it felt, meaning I just felt like, as opposed to Denver, you know, I wasn't bowing down to the car, you know, <laughs> um, the car sort of bowed down to the people here as far as, you know, having bus lanes for pedestrian for, uh, for buses and, and numerous crosswalks for pedestrians and bike lanes for bikes. I mean, it's just, it's designed around the pedestrian, the person and not around the vehicle, you know? And, um, that, that, that's what struck me how easy, how human it was, but also I would say how, um, I guess the phrase I would use is commonsensical. You know, I walked out of my door not knowing how I was going to get to another neighborhood. And it turns out I just pull up Google Maps or the transit app and, and there's going to be a bus waiting for me probably within five minutes, you know, max, um, multiple buses, you know, to get me to where I need to go or, or the metro. Uh, or I could hop on the bike share system. So um, just how, um, yeah, how commonsensical it is. Thanks, David, for being able to join us. Chris, have you ever seen the movie Barcelona, Whit Stillman's movie Barcelona, about American expats living in Barcelona in the 80s? I think it's sort of, it's actually not specific about what time it's set in, but it's supposedly the 1980s. No, it sounds great. What happens in that? No, it's really great. I mean, it really is. Uh, what happens in it? Probably about as much as happens, inverted commas, in my own pieces. Um, so it, it tends to be like all of Whit Stillman's films. It's mostly people sitting around talking um, and talking about life. And then a few things sort of happen to them and jolt, uh, jolt the story arc. Um, but it's just, it's a fabulous film. And one of those films that gets better on repeated viewings, um, which is something that I just, find kind of fascinating like when you first watch something you think was that was that profound or not um and then you the more you watch it the more you realize that it has lots of layers to it it's a great film i highly recommend it highly recommend it well, that's great thanks i would definitely be looking that up perhaps we can tweet a link to it 
Well, thank you so much for listening to the Emigre podcast uh, with Dominic Hilton in Buenos Aires, Chris Bullivant in Charlottesville, and David Sachs in Barcelona, Spain. And thanks to Ben Gilliam, our producer. Until next time.